some relief came, Mr. Speaker, not for everyone everywhere. Will I need to hold massive axe the tax rallies in every liberal riding to finally do away? It will address the affordability issues, put more money back in the pockets of Canadians, and actually help us to address climate change, something that the honorable the opposition members seem to ignore on an ongoing basis. So not surprisingly, the uh, federal government's about face on carbon tax dominating question period today. Uh, the Liberals, of course, uh, announced last week, the Prime Minister announced it on Thursday, that for three years, there will be no carbon tax that applies to home heating fuel. If you heat your home with natural gas, which is the reality for pretty much everybody west of Quebec, uh, the carbon tax will still apply. So it creates an obvious double standard and an unlevel playing field. And it really undermines the government's defense of carbon pricing. That because the carbon levy pays out rebates, uh, that, that addresses those concerns. But of course, now the government has conceded the point that the rebate isn't sufficient. That really the only way to address affordability is to remove the tax. So how can they justify doing so on home heating fuel, but not doing so on natural gas for home heating? Or for that matter, on anything else that the carbon tax applies to, gasoline, for example. Uh, so it's, it's hard to see how the government can defend this approach moving forward. Uh, and it certainly feels, though, that the whole concept of carbon pricing is, is really now all of a sudden under threat. The government argued before the Supreme Court of Canada in defending the constitutionality of national carbon pricing that it was crucial to have national standards, to have consistency across the country and not have exemptions for provinces or for regions. So where does this all go from here? And is this the, maybe the beginning of the end uh, of national carbon pricing in Canada? Well, someone who's been watching uh, this whole debate and uh, written extensively about it uh, is Trevor Toom, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Calgary, Research Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the uh, University of Calgary. Trevor, thank you so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. Great to be here. So the, the underlying principle of a national carbon price, uh, national consistency, and as mentioned, that was part of the government's defense before the court regarding the constitutionality of their carbon levy. But uh, for it to work, for it to be credible, how important is that consistency? Well, the central argument behind carbon pricing and why a lot of economists kind of see a lot of value in it is it treats all activities that emit the same way. So all individuals across all regions in any sector, regardless of the fuel source, if you put a ton into the atmosphere, then you pay the same as anyone else who puts that same ton mm -hmm. uh, into the atmosphere. And, and that creates this uniform incentive for the folks who have easier and lower cost ways of avoiding the emission in the first place. And, and there is scope in very narrow circumstances for exceptions. Like if you know in advance that a particular activity is completely unresponsive necessarily to the price, then exempting that activity uh, doesn't undermine the broader system. And I, I, I think there may be the best examples like diesel for electricity generation in a northern remote fly-in, fly-out community or something. Uh, home heating if there's an argument to exempt heating oil, then that same argument would apply to natural gas as well in terms of individual behaviors or opportunities to to avoid emitting. Uh, so this this is a move that really does undermine both the core 
economic concept of, of carbon pricing and also some of the communications that has been put forward in support of it. So it's a really problematic move. Well, right. Some of those explanations, because it's hard to square with the government's position all along, right? And, and you know, they've, they've resisted those those calls for easing or, or ending the carbon tax mm-hmm. because of affordability concerns. Now that they've conceded that point, what does that open the door to? Well, it's not just that they resisted calls to eliminating the carbon tax to address affordability concerns. They, they did it last week, like on Monday. Uh, a minister up in the House of Commons in response to a specific question about removing the carbon tax from home heating, saying, no, the carbon tax puts more money in the pockets of Canadians, and if we were to remove it, then it would make pollution free again. And then by Thursday, that's exactly what they did, and which is is interesting enough, but they then do a complete 180 on the language and say, we are removing it from home heating to address affordability concerns. And people who spend uh, money on home heating oil in in the Maritimes, on average, uh, spend not a dissimilar amount to those who buy natural gas uh, for home heating here on the prairies or or elsewhere in the country. So if there's an affordability argument for one fuel, it's hard to say why there is not for another. And it's that transparency apparently political and rapid about face after years of reinforcing a particular argument that's pretty stunning there was and we spoke about this before and you've written about you know the government's proposed emissions cap on oil and gas emissions Mm -hmm. and how that undermines uh, the concept of carbon pricing because as you said here today you know it's supposed to treat emissions equally regardless of of where they're coming from so there's already been some undermining of the concept but is this is this worse is this at a, a a greater level in terms of of that undermining Yeah, great question. I've always viewed these other policies that have been rolled out as each chipping away at the underlying rationale for the carbon price uh, or or carbon tax. I'm not afraid to call it that. Uh, So cap on oil and gas emissions, but also all sorts of subsidy programs and regulations that have been coming in. The carbon tax is supposed to substitute or those kind of targeted programs that rely on government discretion knowing where the cheap ways of avoiding emissions are located. And it often does not. That's why market-based measures like the carbon tax are are a cheaper, economically more efficient way to go. But this, this is now chipping away at the carbon tax itself, using logic that is hard to argue with for every other aspect of the carbon tax. And so while this is not something that affects a majority of Canadians, you know, it is not even a majority of residents in the Maritimes, but it's something that completely undermines the logic of the carbon price itself uh, from within, whereas all these other regulatory approaches, it's just kind of awkward. It causes people to think about the broader issue of climate policy in the wrong way, or I shouldn't say the wrong way, in, in, in a way that encourages us to adopt less efficient policies, leading many to conclude, well, why have the carbon tax at all, which, mm-hmm. is, which is fair enough. But now they're incorporating that counter-argument directly into their carbon pricing system. And it's going to be hard to see how they resist calls to expand this to other fuels. We saw Premier Scott Moe today of Saskatchewan saying basically that Fast Energy, the Crown Corporation, is going to stop 
collecting the federal carbon tax on natural gas right. on January 1st. Yeah, there's interesting legal issues there. I mean, that'll be interesting to watch for sure. sure. But I think this is the beginning of the end. Well, yeah, further to that, and that's that's what you said. The carbon tax is now effectively dead. You just said, you know, it's the beginning of the end. This is all an unraveling. So wh- why do you see it in a, in a more pessimistic sense that way? Well, well, I see it because the government has clearly abandoned all of its past arguments for the policy itself by introducing an exception to say we're addressing affordability issues is to say that this was a way that exacerbated affordability issues. Having the carbon tax in place made affordability worse, so we're getting rid of it in this way. If that's what they think now, then that logic applies to every single other aspect of the carbon price. So so now, uh, if we take them at their, at their word, they regret the carbon tax in the first place. Uh, the calls to expand the exemptions to other fuels is going to be really hard to resist. I can't imagine it'll last on natural gas for too much longer. But people who use gasoline for long-distance commuting, maybe lots of suburban areas, especially around the GTA, that are competitive, this is an affordability challenge for them, too. And so just abandoning their... Their argument that they have been deploying for years, just abandoning it, abandoning it completely, uh, doesn't leave them much to work with. And so every single other party is basically opposed to carbon prices. Uh, the NDP is very happy to go the regulatory route. The Liberals were the only ones to be supporting carbon pricing in a meaningful way, and now even they have just walked away. Right. And in, in that void, then we end up perhaps with emissions caps, regulations, subsidies, so. or some combination of all of the above from a public policy perspective. Does that leave us worse off? I, I, in, yeah, I mean, I think so. In the aggregate sense, carbon pricing is more economically efficient. It lowers emissions in the cheapest way possible, but it does so in a way that government doesn't have discretion, right? It's not actually picking the winners and, and losers, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that might itself create some unmanageable political challenges. And so it's easy for me as an economist to say that this policy is superior in an economically efficient way. If it's fundamentally unpopular in a way that's difficult for a government to manage, then perhaps it's a tool that, that does need to be put away. And we can incur higher costs as a result, and I think that's a that's unfortunate, um, but it does seem pretty clear that that's where we're headed. I guess we shall see. We'll leave it there for now, Professor Toon. Appreciate the insight uh, as always. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. You bet. My pleasure. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is Professor Trevor Toom, uh, professor, full professor of economics now, University of Calgary, research fellow with the School of Public Policy. Uh, so his assessment uh, of all of these developments, and in his view. As he writes, quote, the carbon tax is now effectively dead. Do you share that assessment? If so, how does that leave you feeling? Where do we go from here? Uh, so Scott Moe really throwing down the gauntlet here today, as Trevor Toom alluded to. We played for you a little bit of that earlier. Uh, Scott Moe saying, unless the federal government's going to come up with a new fair and consistent policy where home heating is exempted from the carbon tax for all Canadians, he's going to stop collecting it in his province. Now, as a couple of people have pointed out, it's not so much the collecting the carbon tax that's the issue. It's the remitting it. 
uh, Andrew Leach, energy economist at the University of Alberta, points out that uh, technically Sask Energy doesn't actually have to collect the carbon tax. They could choose not to collect it if they want. Uh, they're expected to pay it, and it's their choice then that they pass it on to consumers. So stopping the collection is easy enough. But the issue here is that uh, Sask Energy is required to remit that amount to the federal government. So what happens now? Well, January 1st is when Scott Moe says this will happen. And I guess he's also saying that it's uh, up to the prime minister uh, to ensure we don't get to that point by bringing in a fair and consistent national policy. So welcome back. A statement released here today by one of Alberta's two main party leaders. Guess which of them said it? To apply a carbon price to only some regions and some fuels is totally unacceptable. To make this choice on the basis of the governing party's polling number is shameful. Albertans should get the same relief as any other Canadian. Uh, tough one. Uh, no, it wasn't Daniel Smith. That was Alberta NDP leader Rachel Notley. So they've submitted an emergency motion. Uh, that they want the UCP to support. Uh, be it resolved that Legislative Assembly recognize carbon dioxide emissions contribute to a change in climate. Well, at the same time, inflation has caused deep increases to household costs for all Canadians. Therefore, the Assembly believes the federal government's recent changes to climate policy announced October 26 should be applied to all Canadians, regardless of geography or home heating method, including natural gas. Uh, the statement from uh, Ms. Notley says, I hope the UCP will join us in affirming that climate change is real and all Canadians have a role in protecting our way of life. So it'll be interesting to see how this issue casts a shadow over the uh, upcoming session of the Alberta legislature, which begins later this afternoon with the speech from the throne and the tabling of some government legislation. Uh, we'll find out uh, for sure the details once that is tabled. We did get an overview uh, on Friday from the government house leader as to what their priorities are going to be. And, of course, uh, a lot of that was talked about during the election. So joining us to talk a bit more about this uh, new session of the Alberta legislature, what to expect from the government, from the opposition, what else might uh, crop up beyond their uh, stated agendas. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dave Cornoyer, Alberta political writer and podcaster, much more DaveBerta.ca. Dave, good to have you with us. Thanks for making some time for us here. Hey, thanks for having me on, Rob. Happy to be here. So I mentioned, you know, this emergency motion the NDP are pushing where, you know, Rachel Notley and, and Daniel Smith are kind of on the same page, which is weird to see in, in pushing back against what the federal government announced last week. What kind of a, an impact do you see this issue having now, at least over the next week or two here? Well, I, th I think it really sets the tone for, I mean, the timing, the federal government's timing, you know, they tied, it did, obviously it wasn't on purpose, but I mean, uh, Alberta's mm -hmm. politicians are are all gathering in Edmonton today, and they're going to basically going to be in Edmonton on and off, but mostly for the next uh, for the next five weeks. And and uh, uh, it's <laughs> you know when when I heard the uh, the the federal government's announcement, and I'm sure a lot of Albertans felt the same way when they heard it. Uh, I mean, it just seems so blatantly unfair uh, uh, on, on 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 its front. Like it's it's very it's very clear that. Regional favoritism that the Liberals are reacting to their their plummeting poll numbers across the country, but specifically in places where they have lots of seats, like mm -hmm. Atlantic Canada, where they need to win seats if they if they have any hope of, of forming government in the next election. Um, so yeah, this is this is blatantly unfair, and I think that 
uh, that it, it's demonstrated by both political parties in Alberta pointing towards the the, the, un, the absolute unfairness that you know because Albertans uh, and I mean not just Albertans but people on the, on the prairies you know burn natural gas to to heat our homes and you know winter's coming winter's here uh, looking at the snow and looking at the temperature um, and and you know that to have a group of, of people in another region simply be uh, exempted from it for purely electoral political reasons is is just blatantly unfair so I think it's something that both parties can agree I think the NDP probably didn't really want to focus going into this legislature on fighting with Ottawa I think they, right. have, they had other things set on their mind um, you know education health care uh, affordability issues, electricity prices. I mean, but that kind of plays in. That kind of plays into this as well. So I think you'll you'll see the NDP, uh, you know, doing their best to to uh, to to fly the Alberta flag, but also uh, segue it to, to talk about uh, talk the cost, talk about the cost of electricity, which has really skyrocketed here in Alberta mm-hmm. as well. It feels like it's been forever since we've uh, seen all of these folks in the Alberta legislature. I mean, the election was, what, about five months ago. So we've got the same premier, the same opposition leader, but, you know, the the makeup of the House is is different. I suppose things have changed in a lot of ways since the the last sitting. So what's, what's new and what's different in the fall here, do you think? Well, I mean, the, in terms of the, the composition of the legislature, I mean, the, the the majority of the MLAs from Calgary are NDP MLAs, and right. that's going to be very interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. Now, the remaining MLAs in Calgary, the the UC the UCP elected, uh, I think with the exception of two or three of them, all of them are in cabinet. So it's a very Calgary heavy cabinet because uh, you know the UCP realized that I mean they lost a lot of ground in Calgary, and if they if they want to gain ground back in the next election, they're going to have to. Um, have to put their sights on Calgary. That's where the seats are. Um, but you know, it's going to be very interesting to watch how that dynamic plays out and how the some a lot of these new rookie MLAs. I mean, a lot of them in the opposition benches have their have the opportunity to uh, to to demonstrate their you know their talents and and uh, and and see how they fit and how they perform in the legislature. But the same with on the government side. Now, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the cabinet ministers are not rookies. They're, you know, the returning MLAs. A lot of people, a lot of the, the current cabinet ministers served in cabinet before under Jason Kenney. Um, so there's a lot of experience going in there. But it's going to be interesting to see the dynamics because it is, a, you know, there is a much bigger opposition, 38 MLAs in the opposition benches. That's the largest opposition we've had in Alberta history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, there's also the in, the urban-rural dynamic. Is The opposition is very urban. It's Calgary... Edmonton, uh, Lethbridge, and you know, and and uh, and some of some a handful of kind of surrounding areas like Banff and Sherwood Park. So there's you know there's there's regional dynamics that go that go along as well. But it's going to be really interesting. I mean, any kind of first legislature after an election, um, you know, the the MLAs they want to go. They, you know, they're they're excited. Uh, they're going to want to go and demonstrate and and uh, you know prove to their constituents that that their constituents made the right choice. But there's you know so there's going to be a lot of excitement. There might be you know they're all uh, there's there's still they still have the the past the recent election on their minds. So that keep, you know we have to keep in mind the mood and the and the the narratives of the last campaign. Uh, but there's also going to be a big learning experience for a lot of a lot of these new MLAs. So look for the parties to you know start. Uh, positioning their their new MLAs and with their with their veterans and, and seeing who can really uh, you know who 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 has who has what it takes to play a big role in the legislature. Uh, your latest uh, on your Substack uh, kind of goes over what 
the issues uh, are likely to be that are going to dominate this session of, of the legislature based on, you know, the government's own stated agenda, what the opposition's been focusing on. I think the pension plan issue's really going to stand out. Uh, we're going to see some kind of legislation brought forward yeah. by the finance minister. The government seems intent on, on pushing ahead with this, but I think the NDP, the opposition see, you know, that maybe this isn't popular, and so they've really been pushing back hard, so it feels like yeah. this is going to be a real flashpoint. I think the pension will be a big flashpoint. I mean, the, the uh, finance minister, Nate Horner, uh, has said he's going to introduce legislation. Typically, when, when a government hold the, holds the referendum, they have to introduce, introduce a bill that kind of lays out the rules around the referendum. We saw this last year, 2021, when there was the bill on the, the constitutional amendment on the um, uh, on um, on federal funding or, or equalization, pardon me, on equalization that the provincial government did some, uh, introduced a bill that was similar. So I expect that uh, the pension plan bill referendum bill will probably be similar and kind of lay out some of the rules around how it works with the Elections Act and some of the, the election finance rules and the spending rules. Um, but this is going to be a big issue. And I mean, as you, as you said, I mean, it's, it's the op- this, is a good, I mean, this is a good issue for the opposition because, as we've seen in the polls, this is not a popular idea. Abacus data had a poll out last week that showed that 51% or 52% of Albertans were opposed to the two uh, pulling out of the Canada Pension Plan and starting the Alberta Pension Plan, and only 19% of Albertans were supportive of, our, of the idea or thought it was a good idea. And and it's interesting because they did, they did the poll for, by province, so they talked they pulled people in BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, other and other other provinces, and they also pulled. Uh, how many people were aware of the issue? And in Alberta, it was astonishing. Out of the out of all the people who were pulled, ninety percent of the people who were pulled in Alberta were aware of the Alberta pension plan issue. Which is, I mean, trying to get on you know that kind that kind of awareness on any kind of issue is really is really quite astonishing and, and very difficult for 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 governments anyway because people you know they have their life they live their lives and they don't necessarily tune into what's going on in politics. But when you start talking about pensions, when you start talking about people's retirement security, people think about, you know, that little that little line on your pay stub that says Canada Pension Plan. And, you know, people don't want politicians playing politics with their with their retirement security. And that seems like something we've seen, a pretty basic thing that we've seen in, in, in Canadian and Alberta politics for, for a long time. So I think in a lot of ways, the, the UCP is kind of playing with fire with this issue. Because they, you know, if they spend the next year uh, really campaigning and spending a lot of public funds advertising promoting the Alberta pension plan and this pension plan fails if it fails I mean even even by by a small margin I mean that that's a big blow for the government they're spending a lot of political capital on this issue yeah, they sure are. So we we heard from the government house leader Friday. I think we'll we'll mm-hmm. be seeing some legislation coming later on this afternoon that we'll be able to, I guess, get into more detail on later. Yeah. But um, in terms of their stated uh, agenda here, you know, issues they talked about during the campaign around changing uh, the laws around uh, any future tax increases in yeah. Alberta, new legislation regarding forcing people into addiction in certain cases. What, what should we be watching for from the government? Well, the, the tax referendum one is it's kind of a, a, a housekeeping one in, in, in some ways because it's something that the government can put on the books but can easily take off if they want. And what that is is that during the election, Danielle Smith pledged to uh, amend the an already existing law that's called the Taxpayer Protection Act. And that bill was, in, that bill was introduced by Ralph Klein way back in 1995, uh, and that basically made that, said that uh, in 95 it was if the Alberta government 
wanted to introduce a provincial sales tax, it would have to go to referendum. Well, they're amending it now to include increasing, uh, if the government wants to increase uh, personal or business income tax, they have to go to referendum. Now, there's all sorts of rules that governments have implemented over time. We used to have rules about governments you know, making it illegal for governments to run deficits or take on debt in Alberta. And, and when it became inconvenient for the government and the government needed to take on debt or needed to run a deficit, those rules just quickly kind of disappeared and the acts were amended. So mm-hmm. this is very much a, 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 it's kind of performative, um, but, you know, if the government wanted to go, wanted to increase personal income tax or business tax, um, tax rates after, after this is created into law, uh, then they're going to have to go through the motions of publicly going in the legislature and removing it. So there's some, like, there's political dangers around doing it. It's, 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 it, it, it creates, it creates a, um, a more difficult situation or more challenging situation for government to try to communicate it. They can't just kind of put it in a budget. Um, they have to go through the legislative process. Now, the, the Compassionate Intervention Act, which is something that that Daniel Smith talked about during the provincial election, and that really is a it's an involuntary d- drug rehab law. So they'd be able to a police officer or a family member, um, or or someone in, in a social service uh, agency. It's kind of they didn't really really go into too much detail because the law hasn't been created yet. Um, but they promised to to implement that law to deal to as their way to deal with the addictions issues and a lot of the challenges. Um, that I mean, we're seeing in a lot of communities uh, across Alberta now that law is not going to be introduced this fall. They initially said it was going to, but they've said when Joseph Shaw was um, the government house leader was asked about it last Friday, he said that they weren't ready to introduce it, so they're going to probably introduce it at a future point. So I'll be looking to the spring session or even the next fall session in 2024 for, for that, because that will be interesting and probably very controversial. Now, what they, what they, what uh, uh, Mr. Shaw did say they were going to introduce was something called the Opioid Damages and Healthcare Cost Recovery Amendment Act, and and it, he was kind of it was, didn't really go into too much detail. We'll see when it's when it's actually tabled in the legislature. But I think that what that bill was aimed at going after companies and going after after groups legally who are um, who are responsible for um, inappropriately distributing opi- opioids. One of the questions on the opposition side, David, it concerns the leader. Um, you know, is, is Rachel Notley, is she going to stick around as leader? Is she maybe starting to think about what it looks like to sort of hand hand over that responsibility to a successor? What's your sense of maybe what, what she's thinking or kind of where, where the party's at here with, as you say, having the largest opposition mm-hmm. in Alberta's history, but coming up short in that election? You know, that that's that's a big question. It's something that I know myself and a lot of political watchers are, are keeping and keeping an eye on it. This year marks nine years. Next year will be ten years that Rachel Notley's been leader of the Alberta NDP. And there's no doubt that she she's created that party into a political machine. It went from four MLAs and maybe about nine percent of the popular vote in, in the election when she was first elected to uh, you know, becoming government in 2015, and then not flaming out after they lost government in, in 2019 mm-hmm. um the, you know they they came they came back and uh, you know they weren't able they, they missed the mark they weren't able to form government but holy smokes they won 38 seats and were able to make major gains uh you know and and it will be very it would be very interesting to see you know what the future is for that party i think there's you know new democrats uh there's no real as far as I've been able to see, at least from the people who are in position to do anything about it, there's been no real calls for Rachel Notley to resign. There's no real upheaval against her leadership. I think if the party had lost seats or performed very far under ex- lower lower than expectations in 2023, um, that it might be different. Um, but they did make a lot of gains, um, and I think there's you know there's an expectation that maybe now is the you know or sometime soon before the next election might be time for a leadership change. Uh, but I don't 
see New Democrats banging on the doors or, or, or uh, you know, potential leadership candidates kicking tires. You know, they're all kind of waiting. There's a real respect for Notley within within um, within that party right now for what she's been able to what she's been able to bring them to. Um, but I wouldn't be shocked if I mean I, I I think a lot of people expect that that she won't be leader going into the next election in 2027. That's a long time yeah. in a, in, a, in a very demanding job. Uh, and then there's the question of you know the NDP they went all in in 2023 for this the election in the spring. They did everything they could. They you know <laughs> and and they still came up short. So you know would if Rachel Notley couldn't win in 2023, could she win in 2027? And that that's the big question facing anybody who's running for leader of the NDP going into the 2027 election is, is what can you bring to the table that Rachel Notley couldn't? Could you get the NDP, could they get the NDP further? And I think that's going to be a really hard question for, for the NDP. I think they got some talented MLAs, um, you know, a lot of MLAs with, with, um, with experience as cabinet ministers, which is something that before 2015, you know, opposition parties didn't really have that because we'd had the same government for 44 years. Um, so, but it'll be, it will be very interesting to see who, and, and I think we'll start to see it over the next, probably by the end of this session, we'll start to get a better idea. I mean, the party, if there's going to be a leadership race before the next election and they're going to change leader, uh, you know, we'll get it, we'll start to get a good idea of when they might be. They have time. They don't need to rush right. this situation. Uh, much more on all of this again, as mentioned, Dave Berta, Dave, appreciate the perspective. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me on, Rob. It has been, uh, I would imagine, a very difficult year for the families uh, of Paul Bernardo's victims. We've been hearing a lot about Paul Bernardo this year. And I think a lot of it's been really frustrating to Canadians as well. Of course, we uh, learned earlier this year about Paul Bernardo's prison transfer. In fact, just last week, a newly released document showed that Correctional Services Canada was worried that Paul Bernardo, through his lawyer, might have made a statement on that whole controversy, and they moved to try to stop that from happening. But of course, the whole way that unfolded and how blindsided everybody was by that uh, really was disappointing. So I don't know if we fully understand how and why that that whole prison transfer occurred, Uh, but we are once again coming up on yet another Paul Bernardo parole hearing. Now, his next parole hearing was originally set for next month. That's now been delayed until February, we understand. So in the lead up to that, uh, the families uh, of the victims are trying to make sure that they've got access to his records so that they can make some meaningful victim impact statements. We've got a public parole hearing, but a lot of what gets discussed at these hearings, that's not readily available to the public at large or, or even to, to the, uh, the families of the victims. And it's, I think, time that changes. And it's some change that our next guest is pushing for. Uh, Timothy Danson has uh, long represented uh, families of the victims, uh, the Mahaffey and French families, and uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Tim, thank you so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Let me just ask about the prison transfer, because obviously that, that's been a, a big and, and I'm sure a very difficult story uh, for your clients this year. But do we have any clarity yet on, on how and why that, that unfolded as it did? Well, I don't think we have the, the clarity that we were looking for. They ended up doing uh, an internal investigation and, and review, right. and they concluded, I think it's a whitewash report, but they concluded that they did everything proper according to uh, Corrections Canada you know, rules and regulations. Uh, 
um, and uh, to justify the transfer. Uh, the question that we have is, uh, I've read the report. Uh, I'm not prepared to accept that they did everything in compliance with their rules and regulations. But putting that aside, let's assume for the sake of argument that they did. We have the Prime Minister of Canada, the Minister, and other political leaders standing up in the, on the floor of the House of Commons and outside the House of Commons expressing their outrage and indignation and shock over this transfer. So yeah. the question that the families ask me, and it's one that I can't answer without resulting in, in cynicism towards the entire system, is they say, why when our political leaders are saying uh, so openly to Canadians that this was a shocking decision and it's unacceptable, that they get a report saying, well, that's the law. Well, they're the people who can change the law. So right. why aren't we changing the law? And I can't answer that question for the families. It's, uh, it's quite... Um, it's quite disappointing, um, but um, that's our system at the moment, and someone's going to have to be answerable for that uh, at election time. Well, what's your level of confidence at this point that if, if you know, a similar decision uh, were to be made in the future, that, that A, it would be handled any differently, or, or B, that there would be any, any additional or, or more transparency? Well, I think the only thing that they might do in the future is, is give proper advance notice to the family so they can respond. Right. Here they completely blindsided us and the whole process was really unacceptable. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the families have, it, it, but it's, it's, part, it's part and parcel of a bigger issue and the families have uh, launched uh, quite some time ago uh, an Access to Information Act request. And they've done that in concert with two other families uh, of murdered police officers. So the Toronto Police Association is very much involved in this as well. Where, you know, but we'll use Paul Bernardo as the example, but applies to the other two as well, which is we want uh, the information that Paul Bernardo relies upon uh, to be relieved from the full consequences of his life sentence and his dangerous offenders designation um, that he's relying upon to get, uh, get released. And um, correspondingly, it's the same evidence that Corrections Canada and the Parole Board need to evaluate and review to discharge their public safety mandate. And all of this is happening at a public parole hearing. So all the families have been asking for uh, is is that evidence, that critical evidence that is even referred to during the course of the hearing and is even referred to in the parole board's decision, but we in the public uh, do not have access to that information. So, you know, I mean, transparency is the kind of quintessential core of our justice system. Supreme Court of Canada has said, said that over and over again. Um, open justice, open court system protected by 2B of our charter. So how can someone like Paul Bernardo, so uh, let me just back up by saying there, there, there's a legal equation here that this, this whole discussion must take place. And that is, we're talking about the privacy rights of someone like Paul Bernardo, a sadistic sexual psychopath and murderer, his privacy rights as against the public's right to transparency in our justice system and the rights of the victims. That's the legal equation. And uh, the government has been siding uh, with, uh, with Paul Bernardo in this case. Uh, and unfortunately, the federal court uh, uh, trial division and appeal have agreed with, uh, with Bernardo and, and, and the government. And we now have that before the uh, Supreme Court of Canada on a leave application. And hopefully we're waiting for the government's response on that. And hopefully it will get before a nine-judge panel, because what the courts are saying as a matter of law 
is that the parole board is not a quasi-judicial uh, uh, proceeding or right. the parole board hearings. And so, therefore, the open court, open justice system doesn't apply. And the other thing is, is that the, the families in all the three cases that I were involved in have been attending all the parole hearings, and except that at each parole hearing you have a different composition of, of a parole board panel. So we're the only constant, and the families are there watching the offenders lie and manipulate the system, and, and the panel doesn't necessarily know that this has gone on. So the families put this into their victim impact statements in order for the parole board to effectively adjudicate on the issues before it, including we've asked for the transcript uh, of these hearings or the audio recordings that be provided to the public uh, so they can evaluate whether or not uh, the system is working properly. This is the way it works in the criminal justice system. This is the way it works in the civil system. You, you would never think of closing down the court system. And we do have a statute, it's called the Canadian uh, Victims' Bill of Rights, which makes it clear that the Parliament of Canada has made it clear that all federal legislation must be interpreted in a manner that's compatible with the Canadian Victims' Bill of Rights and that the corrections parole system is integral to our criminal justice system. So how, how, can, a, how can a parole hearing be treated differently than the criminal trial? Right. Tell us then more about what's in these documents. What, what does this evidence cover? Well, the, the evidence covers... Um, uh, the you know the, the psychiatric and psychological reports that talk about um, you know the the you know the the, the uh, uh, character of the individual uh, they they address issues of their 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 risk of, of reoffending their threat to public safety uh, they deal with um, uh, well let me say this uh, as a, as a result of that material even the parole board was able to determine that Paul Bernardo has no insight into his crime he has no empathy. He has no remorse, and if the public could hear the audio recordings of this, of these parole hearings, or alternatively to read the transcript, this guy—and I'm not exaggerating—he talks about the unspeakable crimes that he committed against Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French and other victims, like you and I would talk about the weather. It is bone chilling, and why should the public be? Why, why doesn't the public have a right to access to this? so that they can properly evaluate uh, whether or not the parole board is doing its job and corrections doing its job properly. I mean, the public is entitled to know. These are, this notion that, that, that Paul Bernardo and others similarly situated have privacy rights in the very documents that they're relying upon at a public hearing for a public remedy, which is to be released, out of, to be released back into the community, is just... Um, untenable and so we think that there's some very important legal issues that need to be addressed including the fact that um, you know when it comes to the open justice open court uh, uh, principle protected by section 2b of our charter free speech freedom of the press that um, these are you know clearly you know the the whole purpose behind those charter rights is to 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 ensure transparency so Canadians can determine whether or not the system's working or not. It has nothing to do whether it's judicial or quasi-judicial, but clearly they are quasi-judicial proceedings. They are adversarial, yeah. and uh, this is the, 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 the you know this is so important for the public to understand. And if the public knew that the most dangerous offenders in Canada were being dealt with appropriately, there'd be a much greater appetite for rehabilitation for other offenders. 
But when you put them all in the same category, it results uh, in, 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 in cynicism towards our administration of justice, and that's a shame. So my understanding is now uh, Bernardo's next hearing, it's been pushed to February. D- does that give you enough time? I mean, does it give us enough time to, to get all of this sorted out? And, and would that give you enough time to, to properly prepare for that hearing? Well, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, we will not have uh, uh, any ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada by that. Maybe on the leave application, um, certainly had the, ma- had the matter proceeded as scheduled uh, next month, we would not have. So we will have to proceed with, with what we have right now. But to give you an idea how silly this is, is that, um, you know, one of the things that the families are put into their victim impact statements is to make sure that uh, they state the evidence from a previous hearing accurately. That's what they want. Right yeah. now, they, they go by memory. They're, they're, they now have access to listen to the tapes, but they're not lawyers. They're not trained in the law. And, and they ha- they're, they're prohibited from having their counsel uh, listen with them uh, to be able to extract what's particularly important. And that's just... This doesn't happen in our system, but it's happening right now. I mean, everyone has a right to counsel. Why give the victims the right to listen in a very restrictive manner, uh, the audio recordings, uh, when, quite frankly, we could make a transcript of it like we do all other judicial proceedings and make sure that the parole board has the best evidence possible uh, to make an effective uh, adjudication on the issues before it. We'll see how it all plays out uh, in the months ahead here. Tim, appreciate the update. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Great. Thanks for having me. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is attorney Tim Danson, uh, lawyer for the uh, Hoff, uh, the, the Mahaffian French families, uh, representing Paul Bernardo's victims. And, yeah, just the amount of frustration uh, that they've had to deal with this year. It's really hard to imagine what it's put them through. And, and yeah, so why wouldn't they have the opportunity to know these things? Uh, about how Paul Bernardo is being assessed and what kind of evidence is being used by those who are adjudicating these uh, parole hearings. So it's really frustrating that they've been stymied all along here to the point where you need the Supreme Court of Canada to weigh in. The past few years, for for different reasons, but there has been uh, a bit of a reckoning, I guess, maybe with Canada's past, to what extent Canada has been a racist country in the past, and the question of whether Canada still is to any degree. I don't think anybody denies that that there is racism that exists, but is Canada structurally, systemically racist? What does that even mean, and how do we go about measuring that? Like that, that's, that's a big accusation to level. And, and if it's true, uh, then it's something that we would need to address. It's often stated that Canada is systemically racist. But again, how would we go about knowing that or proving that? Well, it's a new study out from the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy that attempts to do just that, offer a fact-based analysis on that specific claim. So joining us to talk more about it is the author uh, of this piece. You can read at AristotleFoundation.org. Matthew Lau is an analyst uh, with the Aristotle Foundation for Public Policy and joins us on the line here this afternoon. Matthew, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we appreciate making some time for us here today. So, I mean, let's start with the, the concept here of what it is we're talking about. If we guess we're going to, to measure whether something exists, we need to sort of understand what it means uh, is what do you take systemic racism to mean? First of all, 
Right. So I think it's a very important distinction between racism, which I think everybody knows exists to some extent, and systemic racism or institutional racism. And the definition that I use is I just um, go off the federal government's definition, which is patterns of behavior, policies, or practices that are part of the social or administrative structures of an organization which create or uh, perpetuate a position of disadvantage for racialized persons or minorities. Um, so that's, that's the, the working definition of systemic racism I use. Mm -hmm. And in this most recent study, I uh, pulled data from Statistics Canada and other sources to try to see um, in Canada, is it the case that um, white people who are the majority have uh, advantages or systemic advantages over visible minorities. Right. So in answering that question, where would you go looking for answers? Well, one place we might look is the, uh, the statistics on income. Now, if uh, systemic racism was widespread in Canada, uh, we would expect to see white people having discriminatory power and advantages at the top of the economic ladder. Um, so we looked at Statistics Canada. They published data based on the 2016 census of Canadian-born men and women from 10 different visible minority groups and compared them against the average earnings of uh, the white population. And what we find is that uh, both the, uh, uh, men and women have a lot of minority groups, for example, Japanese, Korean, South Asian, and Chinese, um, Canadian-born men and women have higher average weekly earnings than the white population, which is not at all what you would expect um, if, if white people had a, a systemic advantage uh, over minority groups. Right. So in, in, in answering the question of, you know, the extent to which Canada might be a systemic racist country, so how powerful is that evidence in your view then? How, how telling is it that you would see those kinds of numbers when it comes to, to earnings? Well, I think it, it's, um, it is quite fatal to the argument that white people, uh, you know, have power over minorities or systemically oppressed minorities if you see minority groups or, or many minority groups having higher income than the white population on average. Mm -hmm. And you can see it in, in many other um, statistics as well. Another one we look at is um, educational attainment in Canada and the, the groups in Canada that have the highest proportion of their population with the bachelor's degree or higher are Korean, Chinese, and South Asian. Now, if we're a group that oppresses minorities or, or a society that you know, holds down minorities, how can it be that, that the most educated um, populations are, are from these minority backgrounds? It just doesn't make sense. Right. Well, and, and that's that's encouraging to see, you know, various, uh, you know, immigrant immigrant groups thriving in Canada. I, I know there are some specific issues, and this relates to some of the history in our relationship with Indigenous Canadians. So as we look at, at that side uh, of the equation, what, what does your study find? Well, historically, you know, there's no doubt that there's been a lot of discrimination and, and including discriminatory government policies against Indigenous Canadians. And even now you have, um, you know, on reserves, a lot of reserves have a lack of property rights that tends to um, make housing on those reserves worse. Now, 
If you look at the data, however, um, there's we also look at the data on the incomes of Indigenous Canadians. Um, now, if you just look at the population as a whole, it is true that Indigenous Canadians have, on average, lower incomes than non-Indigenous Canadians. But a lot of this is explained for by things like geography. So, for example, um, it's just a fact in Canada that if um, if you live in a very rural uh, part of the country, on average, the incomes are going to be lower than if you live in a big city. So to the extent that Indigenous Canadians are more likely to live in rural areas, that explains some of the income gap. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we also look at Statistics Canada uh, uh, information on the incomes of Indigenous and non-Indigenous, non-Indigenous full-time workers. Um, and we compare them by in, uh, by educational attainment. So, for example, if you're an, an Indigenous person and you get a bachelor's degree from the University of Toronto and you take a job somewhere in the city, you're going to make pretty much the same income as a non-Indigenous person who goes to the University of Toronto and takes a job in the city. Um, when you when you start doing an apples for apples comparison, it's it's hard to find that there's uh, systemic discrimination. There's also the, you know, the question of how best to address these issues, how best to, to remove barriers to create equality, because uh, a lot of those who, who claim the existence uh, of systemic racism in Canada believe that it, it needs to be a, a government-driven solution. But what, what does your study find? Well, it, it's a historical fact. And in fact, uh, Gary Becker, who is a Nobel Prize-winning economist, did a lot of uh, pioneering research in this area on the economics of discrimination. And what he found, and, and what is uh, just common sense and widely accepted among economists today, is that um, discrimination against somebody based on race, for example, or gender, is a competitive disadvantage in the economy. So, for example, if you're a company that refuses to hire people of a certain race, you can end up paying more for, for talent. Or if you discriminate against customers of a certain race, you're going to lose a lot of business. Um, so what Gary Becker showed is that um, in competitive industries, companies will discriminate less because they'll lose market shares to companies that do not discriminate. And there's a lot of um, evidence that discrimination is more pervasive in um, more um, in, in areas of the economy that, that have higher government involvement and higher regulation. And it's capitalism and free markets that tend to uh, to mitigate the harmful effects of discrimination. Decision today from the Federal Court of Canada regarding the 2020 regulations, the in-council order from the federal government that reclassified and effectively banned hundreds of styles of firearms. This was all setting the stage for what came in Bill C-21, which is the government's sweeping new gun control regulations. And, of course, we're not even yet at the finish line with regard to that legislation, what the uh, final end result is going to look like. Uh, But a disappointing decision today uh, for groups that were challenging that order in council. Uh, The federal court today ruling that the federal government was acting within its rights, within its powers in issuing that order in council. Now, it was not necessarily on the merits of this approach or even some of the other issues that could arise from C-21, but in terms of the power to issue such an order in council, 
to reclassify firearms in this manner. The federal court says uh, the government has the ability to do that. So where does that leave firearm owners? Where does this all go from here? Very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, uh, representing one of the organizations involved in this legal challenge. Rod Giltaka is CEO and executive director of the Canadian Council for Firearm Rights. Rod, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. So give us a bit of, more of an overview here of why you launched this challenge and what was it about the ordering council that, that you thought went too far? Well, the order, the, the government does, I mean, it's our, our team's contention that the government does not have the administrative authority to, um, to ban property like firearms or any other property um, just by using order and counsel. And, and they base that on, uh, on a passage in the criminal code that says government cannot ban any firearm that is um, reasonably used for hunting or sport shooting. And the firearms in question had been reasonably used for both of those purposes for at least the past 30 years, if not the past 80 years. So um, it's a very disappointing ruling. And the government, actually, the judge, uh, Justice Kane, actually went further and said that, uh, that the government doesn't owe any procedural fairness to individual gun owners with respect to taking away private property like firearms. And uh, it's 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 disappointing for a number of reasons, but I think all Canadians should be very concerned at this ruling because it just um, it just highlights that you do not have any property rights at all in Canada, and uh, and that should concern everyone. Right. So, uh, you know, how specific is this to to firearms and the various categories that exist? Is this just about the government's ability then via order and council to reclassify firearms? Because, of course, a reclassification does in, in this instance amount to a ban. Well, yeah. So it's in practical terms. They're they're seizing that property. So they they have talked about uh, rolling out a buyback. That was it's been three and a half years. Uh, it was never feasible, and so we'll see what happens from here on in. But it, for us, it doesn't matter how they did it. They said that property is going to be seized with or without compensation, and that's that's all there is to it. In fact, if, if uh, some may remember Elizabeth May from the Green Party um, sitting in the House of Commons, well, it was remote because it was during the pandemic a couple of years ago, and gleefully declaring that Canadians have no property rights at all. And like today, it's firearm owners. Um, just to change, the, you know, switch out individual firearm owners with homeowners or vehicle owners or anything else. And the court can, can render a similar decision to anything else that you own. So it's a, it's a, it's a, real, it's a real loss for all Canadians. Right. And you know, with regard to the status of these firearms, because, of course, the federal government just recently extended the amnesty. So what, what is the status of the firearms that were caught up in this uh, May 2020 order in council? Well, all of those firearms, there was 1,550 models that the government said they were uh, reclassifying as prohibited. And then there was a, an additional 700 models that were reclassified by the RCMP shortly thereafter as variants of those prohibited firearms and everyone that owned them are still sitting on them in their homes so i still have within arm's reach access of my ar-15s that were were reclassified as too dangerous to own for the last three and a half years and uh, we haven't had any incidents with those firearms uh, during this entire time and we still had we all still had access to them so it's um it's it's quite a mess and uh, they're talking about this buyback and it's 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 too much it's too expensive 
and it's an incredible undertaking. And the government, uh, I don't believe the government has any capacity at all to actually do the buyback. So, uh, as I said, we'll see. Now, with regard to this decision today, uh, you know, there, there would be the option, perhaps, of appealing this to the Supreme Court of Canada. Where, where does the legal challenge go from here? So we aren't, and we're, we aren't anywhere near done fighting because this, we believe this is an, an error in law and in, in the judge's decision. So we have a full legal team reviewing that decision. It's only been out for, I don't know, two hours now. Mm-hmm. But we will be looking very carefully through the whole document. And if there is any opportunity for appeal, we, we're going to take this all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada if that's, if that's where it needs to go. And we will never, ever stop fighting this kind of stuff because most Canadians don't realize that the courts and the government are, are together in this, that the government can just reach into your life, take whatever it wants, whenever it wants, with basically no evidence. And somebody has to stand up and fight this. And if it has to be the, you know, the terrible gun lobby, then, uh, then so be it. We'll keep fighting. What about the, the political side, uh, C-21? Uh, we're, we're not yet, we haven't yet finalized all of this. It hasn't yet uh, become law in this country as we head into a fall session of parliament here. What is the, the opportunity on the legislative side to, to change or maybe force the government to, to you know, start over even on this? Well, um, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a government, a majority government, the Liberal NDP government, and the Bloc is part of, part of that, too. So there's no chance for C-21 to be defeated in the House right now. It's, uh, the bill is in the Senate. I'm, in fact, just packed my bags. I'm headed to Ottawa <laughs> this, uh, this evening to go testify uh, this Thursday at the Senate. Unfortunately, 64 of the sitting 90 senators um, right now in the Senate have been appointed by Justin Trudeau. And uh, so they have the votes in the Senate as well. So I guess um, there's really no stopping Bill C-21. It should be, should be law by Christmas or just shortly thereafter. Um, but things are changing in Canada. People are waking up at how disastrous this last eight years have been. And uh, we're hoping that if an election happens, that we'll be able to turn things around. Well, and uh, yeah, that's certainly a possibility. I think even with regard to this legislation, uh, maybe the federal government went, went even further than, than it thought it could. I think there was an assumption on their part, maybe that, you know, gun control was, was good politics for them. But the backlash to C-21 uh, has, has been quite something. And I, I think maybe they were even caught off guard by it. So just on, on that point, you know, the, the backpedaling we saw from the government, uh, the reaction we've seen, not just maybe from, from groups like yours, but from indigenous groups and other Canadians, it feels like it's been different this time. Well, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I don't think anyone truly believes that, that anything, that any, any part of this, this whole situation with Bill C-21 or the OICs, I don't think anyone that, that is, is familiar with this issue, with firearm, private firearm ownership, really believes this has got anything to do with public safety. We've had these guns for a century in, in Canada. And um, it's, it's political in nature, and that's exactly why you see the, the liberals uh, dealing with this topic the way they have. They came out super strong. They used it. They called an election and tried to use that as an election issue, even though it didn't really place in the top 13 issues to the average Canadian back, if you remember, in the last election. Um, but the minute they started facing blowback, then they backed off, and now they're going forward again. It's just it, it's all political, and it's a terrible shame. And um, you know, the Liberals uh, and the and their enablers over at the NDP have really made a, a mockery of our system. 
Getting back to the court decision and, and the order in council, uh, moving forward, I mean, what kind of a process do we need if, if government believes that, that certain firearms need to be reclassified? What kind of transparency should that, that have to be done through legislation? Like, how should that be addressed as we go forward? Well, our system is a difficult one, Rob, because in our system, the British parliamentary system, the government can pretty much do whatever it wants on any level to anybody it wants. And the only way that you can push back against that is is launching a constitutional challenge at the cost of, I mean, the CCFR put $2.4 million into this action. So the, the decision is, is pretty significant because it's not like we just filed an application and then just waited for a decision. Right, like yeah. we, took, we did everything possible and did everything right. Um, but in our system, it's the government can do whatever it wants, and your only your only recourse is to go to the judiciary. Well, the judiciary agrees with the government that they can reduce your life and take whatever whatever they want. And unfortunately, there is no easy answer. It's just the way our system works. So, I don't know. It's gonna it's it's gonna be a rough ride, I think, for everybody. And and if I can just add one more thing, Rob, Canadians probably didn't know that they didn't have any of these rights the whole time, because in our history. Most governments in our past just wouldn't have ever tried stuff like this. But this government has been very different, and they've done all kinds of things, all kinds of overreach. And now it's coming clear, I think, to many Canadians that we don't have a system that protects us against overreach. It's, it's quite, the, quite, the, quite to the contrary. Well, but just further to that, I mean, did the government need C-21? I mean, why not just do the order in council? Now all of these firearms are, are prohibited, and, and, and that be the end of it. Well, that's a good question. So... When, they, when the government bans something using OIC, order and counsel, the next government that comes in can simply just tell the Minister of Public Safety in this case, go and file an OIC to undo that, or right. go, go repeal that. It doesn't take an act of parliament. But when you put something in legislation, then you need either a strong minority government with, uh, with an agreement like the Liberals have with the NDP. You need a, a majority at some level to repeal that, and that process takes a long time. So the Liberals did not enshrine all those firearms that initially banned in legislation in Bill C-21 because it was unpopular, not because they were convinced that it had a public safety benefit or they wouldn't have taken that out. But when it comes to handguns, they've banned and will confiscate with no compensation handguns over time in C-21. So that'll take an act of Parliament if the Conservatives were to get in and, and, uh, and another two years to, to reverse that if they so choose. Well, we'll see where it all goes from here. Much more uh, at firearmrights.ca. Rod, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you, Rod. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is Rod Yiltaka, CEO, Executive Director of the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. So some disappointment from them today uh, with regard to this court decision. There is the option to appeal it, maybe find uh, uh, other avenues of trying to push back on this, because we are getting awfully close to the finish line, as he mentions, with C-21 uh, before the Senate. So more of the work they're doing, firearmrights.ca. Uh, the decision out today from the federal court that the governor council did not exceed the statutory grant of authority delegated to it by parliament pursuant uh, to subsection 117.15 of the criminal code. Governor and Council formed the opinion the prescribed firearms are not reasonable for use in hunting and sport, and the opinion and decision to prescribe the firearms as prohibited are reasonable. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.